start. Father, um, no one wants to, no one needs to hear from me up here. God, we need to hear from you. Um, Lord, we pray uh, you in this place, um, taking whatever it is I have to say and uh, making it actually be what people need to hear, Father. Um, we pray, Lord, that the nations uh, would come to welcome your justice. We pray that the lost would come to know your mercy, Father, and we pray that the whole world would be filled with your glory for the sake of your Son. Amen. Amen. Um, so I'm just going to preemptively throw this out here. These are not Green Bay Packer colors. Um, <laughs> Kristen cautioned me, and uh, I was going to say, well, they're probably NDSU colors. That would be a little safer, but then Paul and Joyce are here, so um, I don't know. Anyhow. Um, so a few days ago, I went uh, looking for sermons on this text, and I stumbled upon a sermon uh, from Colossians 4 to 6, which is kind of the second part of, of what was read, preached by my spiritual daddy, Alistair Beck. And uh, it was actually his first sermon of the year, preached on January 6th, I think, 1984. So, um, and he used it to lay the foundation for what he would call, uh, you know, it was, it was a laying the foundation for prayer and evangelism in 1984. He broke it into uh, talking to God about people and talking to people about God, which is why the title of the sermon was in the newsletter that went out this week, Conversations Worth Having, but as you can see by the slide behind me, that's not where we are today, but that's still important, so hold on to that. After I listened to the sermon by Beg, I had plenty of paper on my stuff, um, none of which said what he said directly, but what was on my paper and what was in my heart was the desire to say, okay, however you feel about 2023, um, who, Hugo, there's a, <laughs> it's like, this is supposed to be a really dramatic <laughs> part of the message. <laughs> Whatever, uh, whatever you think about 2023, um, I feel, and just hearing the prayers and talking to the people and the laments of their heart, we're stepping, we're stumbling, some of us are crawling into 2024, right? There are wars in the Middle East, in the Ukraine, there are threats from North Korea, there's economic instability, there's possible recession, there's global sex trafficking, there are natural disasters, everybody was or is sick, and we hardly had space or energy to deal with what was left unresolved from the last year, uh, let alone start trying to navigate what lays before us in this next one. And it's an election year, which is certain to amplify the divisions we experience in our families and our workplaces and even our church. And as much as I personally just want to sleep until 2025, um, it's not what we're called to do. And I sort of stumbled into this year asking, how do I do this, right? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that if I wasn't settled about what this is, um, the less likely I would be able to do whatever this was correctly. Did anybody in this service make a New Year's resolution? No, <laughs> see, it's like, right, nobody did. It's not a thing we do anymore, right? Nobody made a, 
a personal goal that you're gonna apply yourself with a renewed devotion, you're gonna make a checklist or an action plan, how you're gonna exercise more, you're gonna go back to school, you're gonna declutter your house, you're gonna eat right, you're gonna be more intentional, you're gonna connect with people, you're gonna learn the banjo, like nobody, all right. Um, Terry, uh, in the last service, did tell me afterwards that she did resolve to learn the banjo this year, and I think that's a noble commitment, so we should all hold her to that. Um, But what are our goals as a church body? Did we talk about that? Did we think about that? What do we want to accomplish as a community? The elders discussed this. We talk about what we'd like to focus on in the next year, how we'd like to help people and each other grow spiritually in the next 12 months, how we'd like to communicate differently, pray more, launch this program, strengthen or grow that ministry. But underneath it, there's this underlying fact of powerlessness over things that we can't influence. I mean, 2020 is proof enough of that. What if that's our reality in 24? What if nothing significantly changes in our lives or in our church to enable us to focus on these things? What if we have the same constraints or circumstances at the beginning of 2025 that we had at the end of 2023? What if 2024 introduces an entirely new set of challenges which render all of our plans and our preparations moot? What if I arrive in 2025 weighing the same as I do now, but with the same stacks of unread devotionals on my dining room table as I had before, but now I also have a lonely pair of unbroken and running shoes and a neglected banjo in the corner of my living room, taunting me, a reminder that whatever it was I intended to do in 2024, it remains undone and I remain unchanged. What if we rethought the wisdom of having a pessimist preach the the New Year's sermon? (laughs) But it's a crazy thought. What if my personal objective in 2024 was exactly the same as it was in 2023? What if we did that as a church? Does our mission change from year to year? Is our mission to glorify God and enjoy him forever on hold because it's an election year? Is the privilege of loving our neighbors and showing them the love of Christ temporarily suspended due to lack of funds? What if it hasn't changed since Jesus walked with the disciples in Galilee and said, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded to you. Because whether I did a good job of it or not last year, I'm still on the same mission, right? Thankfully, God doesn't say to us, um, all right, that was kind of a poor performance last year, not going to lie. Your bathroom's still unfinished. You still have a Pop-Tart for breakfast every day. You're not taking yourself or your relationship seriously. You only pray when you want something. You're on, what, year five of your Bible in a year plan, and your banjo isn't going to play itself, Andy. Maybe you should sit this one out for a couple of months and think about whether you really want to be on this team. Sometimes I feel like he could say that to me, and he probably could, but instead he says, remain in me. I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine, and neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. He says, just come to me if you're weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is his word to us. 
What if we didn't burden ourselves with a bunch of contrived assumptions about who we think we need to be and what we think we need to do differently and instead rested in the comforting truth of who Christ says we already are in him. And we carry on loving those who still need to hear about it from us. Now, I don't want to imply here um, that none of us need to change. And I don't want to suggest that we don't involve ourselves in the conversations of society. And Ellie, I did promise mom in the last uh, service that I will get the bathroom finished this year. (laughs) But we all know that I can't promise that, right? Nothing is. Um, But this message isn't, uh, you know, Jesus loves you exactly the way you are and he wants you to stay that way forever. It's not, you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, so go hide out until he comes back to get you so that you keep from getting corrupted. The message is, no, no, Christ loves you even though you are the way you are. But he says, I have begun a good work in you and I'm gonna continue it and carry it on until completion on the day of Christ Jesus. He wants to make us fit for eternity and not just us. What does he say? He says, for God so loved the world. So I want to spend some time this morning with these verses, not loading people up with a bunch of things to do in 2024 and not even giving you a bunch of ways to cope with the challenges that are certain to accompany the next 12 months. But I want to give a few reminders, a few encouragements that might help us keep from being pulled off course. The verses we're studying today help us step out on God's word as we endeavor by God's grace to stay on mission for the gospel, heading into 24, believing that God is still saving sinners. So I'm going to briefly recap the context of this letter. Um, And if you have a decent study Bible, you can just find it in the beginning of the chapter there too. But here's mine. Um, This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae, modern-day Turkey. It was established by Epaphras, who likely studied under Paul. Now, the Colossians were experiencing a bit of an identity crisis, the Christian faith started to rub up against other belief systems of the time. And if anybody here from the old church can say, Paul, what did Bill used to say? What you rub up against rubs off, right? Um, they were mixing beliefs. They were becoming legalistic. And a new offshoot of faith was springing up, something that in the second century would be known as Gnosticism. It's from the Greek word of knowledge. Um, And it argued that a specific kind of knowledge of the divine was necessary for salvation. And this knowledge had only been revealed to a very specific group of people. Um, So Epaphras traveled to Rome, 1,200 miles away, to share his concerns and to seek counsel. And this letter was Paul's encouragement to that church not to be taken off course, to keep their attention focused on Christ. See, this isn't a new problem that we face today. And thankfully, it doesn't require a new answer either. The first part of our text today, uh, verse 22 of chapter three through verse one of chapter four, is the third part of a three-part exhortation to Christian households. The first two parts, what I preached last time, spoke about the relationships between husbands and wives and parents and children. Um, And what we come to hear is exhortations to masters and slaves, written at a time where probably 30% of the world was a slave at some point, or of uh, the empire where he was writing to was a slave of some form. And although people argue they weren't treated the same way as we think of when we think of colonial America, the reality is slavery was real. It treated people like property, 
There was little in terms of protection, and we could suppose that these commands are included in this text because relationships were generally less than familial or congenial. And although there are four verses written to slaves and only one written to the masters, I think the final word to the masters is strikingly poignant. He says, in essence, the same thing of the masters that he says to the slaves. Remember, Paul says, you have a master in heaven. So if they were a slave serving with sincerity or possibly dishonesty, as is suggested here, they were reminded to hope for their ultimate reward from their heavenly master. And if they were a human master trying to deal fairly or not with their slaves or their indentured servants, um, or even, for that matter, coming off the rest of the verses with their husbands, their wives, their children, their parents, Paul exhorts them all. This is your first reminder. Remember who Christ is. And I mean, he doesn't use those words here, but he's referring to Christ as the master in heaven. At the end of a corrective letter to the church, which presented Christ not as a household God, not as an intermediary between man and some cosmic truth, he presented Christ who came to earth as a baby, lived as a man, and died as a perfect sacrifice of sins for the guilty as one who is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. Paul is not tap dancing around Christ's supremacy here. Everything having to do with life and salvation has this fact as its focus. Um, a funny so side note, I sometimes get grief um, from people uh, for going through these texts kind of slowly. Um, I think this is, this is Sermon 16 from the book of Colossians for me, and I think Beg did like 32 or 33 or something like that. But Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, another one of my spiritual heroes, or my uh, preaching heroes, introduced a sermon the way he usually does, and he says, um, I would like to call your attention this evening to the words that are to be found in the last portion of the 18th verse of the first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Colossians. That is, the epistle to the Colossians in the first chapter at the end of the 18th verse, that in all things he might be preeminent. And (laughs) his... Christ's supremacy was important enough to Lloyd-Jones that he preached for an hour on the word preeminent. He probably could have preached for five. It's really important that we understand that this is really important. All of Paul's encouragement, his instructions, his corrections, everything hinges on this fact. Everybody in the world, every person, every religion at some point has to decide what are they going to do with Jesus. He either is who he says he is or he isn't. And as C.S. Lewis points out, based on Christ's own claims about himself, he's either a lunatic, he's a liar, or he's the Lord. There is no other option. He hasn't left us with one. So I'm taking this position here that Christ is who he says he is. Um, If he's not, we should just stop reading. 
as the believers in Colossae would have done. It changes everything about how we interpret the world around us and even how we respond to our personal situations. See, this part of the letter, this is a contentious topic, as is the letter to Philemon. When he sends the runaway slave back to uh, Onesimus, he sends him back to Philemon, his owner. But it underscores the question that I'm asking, what if our circumstances don't change? How will you live? Was Paul opposed to slavery? Certainly. He told the slaves in Corinth, if you were a slave when you were called to Christ, you know, try to secure your freedom. But he also says, in effect, serve the Lord faithfully wherever you are. The best place to serve God is where he has planted you. And you can read in this letter that he's speaking to the longings of their hearts. He's reminding them, there are good masters and there are bad masters. Even in your faithful service to bad masters, the good master has not forgotten you. They will be rewarded for their faithful labors on earth. There will be justice for the injustices against them. And as he said in verse 11 of chapter 3, there are no distinctions. There is no favoritism among those whom Christ has purchased. Here, there is no Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. And that's why, by the way, Kevin is so keen on having this podium down here on the floor instead of up on the riser where it might be easier to see because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And I haven't figured out if that indicates that I'm as bad as you or you're as bad as me, neither of which are very flattering for either of us, but it's a reminder that we as Christians, including those in first century Colossae, we serve no small God. We don't serve a God who will one day need to bow to another God. We don't serve a God who is unknowable or unreachable or uninterested in the daily reality of our lives. We serve the invisible God made visible, the one who is before all things, what Aristotle referred to as the unmoved mover, the one who made everything out of nothing and set the universe into motion without needing to be moved first himself. He's the only self-existent one. Nothing escapes his view. Nothing surprises him. He's the first and the final judge. He sees sin. He sees its effect on the world and he weeps for his children over it because we're all tainted by it. We have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. But God, that beautiful phrase from Ephesians 2, has determined to rescue us from it and to eliminate it once and for all. So he lived a perfect life and died a perfect death, not because we asked him to, but because we needed him to. And this death was the full and final payment for our sins, not his, ours, our abuses, our disobedience, our hurtful words, our indifference, our falsity and deceptions, our exploitations, our selfish pursuits and manipulation, our rebellion against a good and gracious God who made a world knowing that he would have to die for it. Remember who Christ is. Christ is that God. He's the only one who could do it and he's the only one who did do it and he sees you. He sees you. Paul's not ignoring the reality of the situations. He's telling the slaves and the masters, the authorities of this world do not have the final word. Nobody does but Christ, not even you. 
Because you see, after Christ laid down his life, he took it up again. He rose on the third day. With his death, he conquered sin and its penalty. And with the resurrection, he conquered death and its promise. When he ascended to heaven, the Father placed everything under him. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him and to those who believe in his name. The Father will call them sons and daughters and co-heirs with Christ. He sees you, Paul says. He has not forgotten you. Don't forget who he is. And don't forget who you are in him. If you're coming in here today um, and you haven't heard any of the other sermons in this series, it's been going since 2018, it's very likely, um, read over that passage uh, from Colossians 1 again in verse 15. This isn't a social manifesto that Paul is trying to convince people of. He's arguing that because Christ is who he is, we should live different. Colossians 4.2 says, continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Even our prayers, if rooted in an understanding of who Christ is, should be peppered with thanksgiving, littered with it all over the place. Because Christ is who he says he is, and because Christ says what he says about us, and he has the authority to say that, we can safely look back and not fear what our past may have said about us, because in Christ, that's not true about us anymore. In fact, remembering who we are in Christ means remembering who we were without Christ. And that drives us to worship and thanksgiving. When we look back in remembrance, like we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to resist the urge to sterilize our memories for the sake of our egos. We don't look back on our salvation. Sometimes we do. Look back on our salvation as the time when God, after years of relentless pursuit and cajoling us, finally won us over to his team. We recite the oft-used phrase, I gave my life to Christ like he really needed it and we did him a favor. Believe it or not, suspend disbelief here, I was never the first kid picked for a team in grade school or junior high. I know. Um, But, you know, I have no difficulty imagining that as God is picking his team, I'm one of the last people to be asked to walk over to his side of the gym, right? I was the poster boy of 1 Corinthians 1.26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. I mean, I love my parents. They're very intelligent people, but based on the stories my mom tells me about me, Um, I don't think you could argue that I was wise by any standard. Um, Not only that, I was the spitting image of Paul's self-description to Timothy. He said, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, and this is my memories from my young adulthood, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. The truth is I didn't give my life to Christ This life had been entrusted to me for his glory and I had recklessly squandered it like the prodigal son. But the father bought it back with the life of his son. I I don't know all your stories. And I gotta tell you, uh, 
I found that God is incredibly gracious to reveal to me the truth of my story very slowly. And uh, every time something else is shown to me, a memory springs to mind, a reminder appears of who I was without Christ, a conviction over something I said or I did, or maybe even this morning, how much more thankful I am that Christ is who he says he is and that he says what he does about me. Um, last night, uh, my daughter Libby, uh, we're trying to get to sleep, and it's, you know, what, 11.30 or something like that, and Libby comes down and pulls this box out from under our bed and starts going through all of these old drawings and things from their preschool days, and she pulled out these why my dad is the most wonderful person in the world things, you know, and it's got all this stuff. It's like, you know, my dad can lift 10 pounds. Um, <laughs> he's as strong as a mule. He's eight inches tall. Um, yeah, and, and also in here, there's a, there's a thing. I, but I know that dad is really mad. I don't know why teachers put this in here. I don't, I know he's really mad when he breaks our dishes. with a mohawk. <laughs> I was probably mad about the haircut, TBH. Um, yeah, I, I guess I have, uh, I guess I, I had and I probably still have some issues. Um, these are things that God, like I look back and I'm like, thank God for God. My belief is that when we acknowledge that we have been saved, yet we'll spend the rest of our lives coming to terms with the reality of what we've been saved from. Amen. And that's okay. It's not wallowing in shame or guilt. That's been taken from us. That's been laid on Christ. As Paul says to the church in Rome, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. <laughs> Weep. Kristen prayed this morning and someone else prayed today. Like, can you imagine what it would be like to continue living this life stuck under the burden of your shame and guilt? How do you do that? <laughs> Maybe you are. Maybe that's why you need to know this for 2024. Maybe we're walking into 2024 with a limp or something that haunts us, speaking lies to us about who we are. I was talking to someone after the service, and um, I know they're struggling, and I said, you know, don't believe the lies, especially if they come from you. What right do we have to offer hope of salvation to anybody else? If they knew what I was guilty of, they'd never listen to me. That's what we tell ourselves. That's the beauty of God's economy. Who says it has anything to do with what you did? Remember who's writing this letter. This is Paul, Saul of Tarsus. There are a lot of things that he could have said to this church in Colossae. He could have gone toe-to-toe with them philosophically or academically. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He wasn't just one of the Jewish elite schooled in Tarsus, trained by Gamaliel. He was one of the preeminent Jewish theologians of the time, beyond repro- reproach regarding his Jewishness, his adherence to tradition. He was also a persecutor of the church. He was the tip of the spear in the effort to wipe Christianity off the face of the earth. He was at the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, giving approval to those who stoned him. He was responsible for the imprisonment and the torture and the punishment of Christians. And Paul knew all the rhetoric. He could cite chapter and verse. He was schooled, yet in this letter, intending to combat heresy, he doesn't start dismantling their arguments. 
He doesn't start attacking their conclusions. He doesn't make offhanded remarks about their questionable parentage. He starts in chapter 21, or chapter one by saying, let me remind you of who Christ is. And then he says in verse 21, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation. How can Paul say this? On what grounds does Paul have this audacious certainty of his standing before God? Certainly not on account of what he did. In fact, the fact of Paul's rebellion makes the fact of God's grace to him through Christ all the more beautiful. Thanksgiving means for believers rehearsing to ourselves not just what we've been saved from, not because uh, rehearsing to ourselves what we want to have been saved from, not because we want to dwell on how awful we were, but because we want to dwell on how amazing Christ is. We don't want to wallow in our wretchedness. We want to bask in God's goodness to us. I mean, these are instructions, any of these, to wives, to husbands, to parents, masters, slaves, employers, employees, customers, service providers, doctors, patients, whatever, how do these relationships look different if we all see our need for Christ before we see theirs? Whenever my um, brother Bruce Washington and I were teaching youth group together here, it was inevitable at some point uh, he'd get a little misty and then he'd tell the kids how thankful he is that God didn't just smite him on the spot. And I'm amazed that he doesn't do it yet to me today when you're preparing to preach, and I do wanna pray also for, um, for Pastor Kevin as he's vacationing, often uh, that intended time of rest also gets hijacked. So pray that he would, he would have rest. Um, when you're attempting to preach, it's guaranteed a time of testing. Be praying for Gabe this week as well because he's preaching next Sunday and pray that God gives him space and, and grace. But it's like that. I mean, when you get up to go to work in the morning, it's like that, right? You want to go and you, be, you, want to, you want to be a good ambassador of the kingdom of God. You want to be a good representative of Christ. And Satan throws every inconvenience, every misunderstanding, every doubt, every frustration at you, trying to throw you off and elicit a response which reminds you that sanctification isn't an instantaneous event. Salvation is, sanctification is a continual surrender. And those times when I respond poorly, impatiently or cruelly are times when I'm knocked off my pedestal, but I can look up and I can still see Christ on his throne. Paul tells Christians here, pray. Pray in thanksgiving because girding yourself with prayer, whether you're preaching or you're worshiping or you're working or you're parenting or you're shopping or you're playing or reading or managing or serving or relaxing, whatever, place your attention and your hope in the right place. There's a quote attributed to Martin Luther which says something like, I have so much work to get done today, so much that requires my attention, I'm gonna have to pray twice as long today. That's not our default position, <laughs> right? I mean, whatever the quote actually is, I think it said that he spent like two hours in prayer every day. Um, Spurgeon noted, Luther thought that the more he had to do, the more he had to pray or else he couldn't get through it. And it's a blessed kind of logic. We should understand it. Praying and provender hinder no man's journey. If we have to stop to pray, it's no more hindrance than when the rider has to stop at the farriers to have his horse's shoe fashioned. For he 
If he went on without attending to that, it may be that ere long he'd have to come to a stop of a far more serious kind. Focusing our prayers on the facts of Christ and the fact of the work accomplished on the cross keeps us from taking ourselves too seriously or deluding ourselves into thinking that any of this depends on us. Um, there's a story uh, I read a long time ago. It was you know Adam Sandler and David Spade, you know Saturday Night Live comedians. Somehow got big in showbiz. Uh, you know they had a lot of sitcoms and and a lot of success in movies. And I think they were at a party and it was like some it was like an Oscars party or something like that where they're you know rubbing elbows with all the Hollywood elite. And they said they just kind of walked into this room and sort of caught each other's eyes and looked at each other, and they sort of had this smile and they're like how did we get here? I think that's what Kevin says every week, right? When he says that, we're going to get to heaven and we're going to see each other and we're going to be asking each other, you're here? <laughs> what? How did you get here? Whoa, it's amazing. I don't mean to point out anybody in particular. Um, <laughs> uh, you guys can all point at me right now. Um, how'd that happen? But then we'll see Christ. We'll see the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of God's nature, upholding all things by the word of his power, who when he had made purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and will say, oh, you're with him. Me too. Praise God. Praise God. Church, we need to live in the truth of this future state now. This isn't as if it's like, once I'm there, I'll no longer be burdened by memories and regrets because then the final judgment will be at last rendered. The verdict is in. If you are in Christ, you are holy, righteous, and redeemed right now. The gospel tells us that this is a reality which can and which must be lived today. We are no less free today than we will be in glory. Because if that's the story of our hope, if we only came to a place of freedom once we realized that it's not something that we could secure by ourselves, there's a world that's perishing for lack of a knowledge of God or true knowledge of God. They know a God who's judgmental, impatient, capricious, a God who looks on them with disdain and not compassion. And Paul ends this section with what uh, G.K. Beale refers to as the crescendo of the epistle. It's all coming back to keeping the main thing the main thing. The church doesn't exist for its own glory. It exists for God's. And God is glorified when Jesus is glorified. And Jesus is glorified when dead souls are brought to life through faith in Christ and his work on the cross. That's the mission of God. That's the mission of Christ. That's the mission of the church. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save the world through him. And this declaration of this mission is Paul putting the church in Colossae back on the tracks. For starters, he's asking for prayer. He knows that this work doesn't require his power. It requires God's. But this is interesting. He prays for an open door so that he might declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I might make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Does anybody here get emails from Voice of the Martyrs? Get those? There was, yeah, there was, there was one yesterday. It was really interesting about a North Korean believer 
named Yun Ji, who was imprisoned for smuggling Bibles from China into North Korea. She was imprisoned, she was interrogated, and she prayed in her room that God would deliver her. She said, it's not my time, God. I have more to do with you. Please deliver me. And then after her interrogation, left alone in this room for a while, the article said while she was still there, a child from a nearby orphanage opened the door and then quickly ran away when they saw that there was someone in there. And then just left the door open. And no guards came. And she sat there for several minutes looking at this open door and walked out of it. She slipped out of the room into the building and she remained in hiding until her and her family could escape from North Korea. She knew her mission. She had more to do. God opened a door for her. But he didn't just open a door to her prison cell, he opened a door to her family who came to faith in Christ through her smuggling Bibles from one oppressive state to another. And we need to remember the context of this letter because I didn't restate it at the beginning today, I don't think, but Paul is writing this letter to the church in Colossae from Rome where he's in prison. He says, on account of which I'm in prison. Epaphras traveled from, from, uh, from Colossae to Rome to visit his friend in prison and here's Paul, no stranger to being jailed or in prison for his faith, asking God to open a door that he might share the gospel. Turn to Acts 16 if you have your Bible in front of you. Remember this one? Um, Remember Paul and Silas in the jail. Right? They're in jail for uh, exercising a demon from a young woman and although they were sitting in the darkness of the prison's inner cells, they had their feet in stocks, they had been stripped, they had been flogged and they stayed awake all night singing hymns and praying to God until an earthquake rent all of the gates off and their shackles loose. And what did they do? Did they, did they run out? Did they go through the door? No, they knew that the guard in charge of them would be held responsible for his loss of the prisoners. And instead of submitting him to execution, they stayed in their cell and they cried out, don't kill yourself, we're still here. The jailer called for the lights, verse 29, rushed in, fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. I think then the jailer took them home. Could they have fled? Absolutely. Verse 26 says that their chains came off, the gates were open, but Paul, who excelled at turning situations into opportunities to share the gospel, was more concerned with the salvation of one jailer and his family than he was with his own freedom or even his safety. And in this letter to Colossae, written maybe 10 to 12 years later, he again, he finds himself in prison for the gospel. And he's praying for doors to be opened, but he's not asking for the door to his prison be opened, he's asking that the doors to their prisons would be opened. He's not asking for release from jail, but that his time in jail would be well spent, that it would be redeemed or bought back for the sake of the gospel. Remember Paul, he had already been in prison for five years at the point that he wrote this letter, at least. He was initially arrested in Jerusalem. He's been under Roman guard, awaiting trial before Caesar this whole time, and now he's in Rome. 
He's in prison and he's praying that all of the people who guard him, the prisoners he travels with, the jailers, the soldiers, the governors and the rulers he's continually paraded before, including Caesar's household, even Caesar himself, he wants to see them all freed from spiritual slavery and judgment. He's not wishing away his circumstances. He's praying into them. He knows that without Christ, people are hurting and are without hope. They're lost, they're harassed, they're like sheep without a shepherd. Do we know that? Do we believe that? Do we believe that without Christ, people just simply can't overcome human nature or find freedom from the reality that we can't live up to our own expectations, let alone God's? And even as, even as Christians, we fall victim to the practice of letting our circumstances define us. We convince ourselves that we deserve them and st- as opposed to simply, they're the tragic reality of a fallen world in which our hope lies not in this world, but in the world to come. And that's where we place our hope. That's what Christ secured for us. Richard Baxter, in a very helpful, somewhat morbidly titled book, Dying Thoughts, um, really good book, wrote, Without Christ and his spirit, we can do nothing. Our dead notions and reason, though we see the truth, have not the power to overcome our temptations, nor raise up man's soul to its original end, nor possess us with love and joyful hopes of future blessedness. It would be better for us to have no souls than to have souls void the spirit of God. It's one kind of faith to say, I trust Christ with my life and my eternity, and another to say, I trust him with yours. Will you step out on that? I trust him with yours. I think because Paul had absolute assurance about who Christ is and who he is in Christ, he's very clear as to why he's in that prison. And because he knows the extent to which Christ went to buy him back, he knows why he's on that mission. He's none too keen to wish away his circumstances if it gives him an opportunity to tell others about Jesus because he knows that God loves to save sinners. And what if in 2024, we kept the main thing, the main thing? God loves to save sinners and he's not done saving yet. Let's pray. I personally, God, am so thankful that you love to save sinners who saved a wretch like me. How sweet the sound, God. Help us, Father, in our circumstances as we step into this year of uncertainty, which every year is, Um, As Kayla prayed, look back on 2023 and remember how we saw you in every situation, Lord. Um, You care less about our circumstances than you do our character, Father, and you are remaking us into the likeness of Christ through whatever this world throws at us. Help us remember, God, that your arm is not too short to save. Um, You love to save sinners, Father, because you love to bring glory to Christ. Help us remember why he came. Father, keep us from uh, undermining or minimizing the scope of who he came for. You came to save the world. 
Keep us, Father, um, focused in prayer with thanksgiving. Keep us from getting distracted or pulled off course, Lord. Help this church stay on mission for Christ's glory. To go to a world that is dying. His perfect salvation to tell. For his glory, Father. As his name. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.